You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, with left-wing parties on the rise in Europe and still in the ascendant in South America, we'll ask if the radical left has the right policies to address today's economic conditions. But we begin in Hong Kong, where the co-founders of the pro-democracy campaign Occupy Central with Peace and Love have called on demonstrators to go home. The call came after police used baton charges and pepper spray in an attempt to drive out student protesters from an encampment they'd set up. The students are protesting against a decision to limit the direct election of Hong Kong's chief executive in 2017 to a list of candidates approved by a pro-Beijing committee. I'm joined now on the line by our Asia correspondent, Clifford Coonan. Clifford, these protests appeared to be fizzling out a couple of weeks ago. What happened to rekindle them? Well, what we've seen is a kind of ebbing and flowing um, over the last couple of weeks, um, as you as you point out. I mean, for for a while we had they were they were really boiling. We had we had um, hundred thousand people on the streets and, and tents all around Admiralty in the centre near the government headquarters. Um, what's happening has just been um, that they they fizzled out, but they they're still on the streets in certain areas, and the government has finally decided that it's time for them to go. And, and they moved in with quite some force, and there were clashes, um, which saw that that they they had to to move this sort of makeshift villages that they'd set up with study areas and supply stations and art displays and things like that. So uh, it's this resolute action that has kind of rekindled uh, um, activity in 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 the demonstration areas again. Now the founders of Occupy Central, as I mentioned, they want the protesters to go home now. Why? Um, well, basically, um, we saw today people like Benny Tai, who's a law professor at the University of Hong Kong, um, uh, basically telling the protesters that uh, the situation had become dangerous uh, and it was time for them to go home. Um, a lot of these protesters are young students, um, not just university students, but even high school students. And um, and they just reckon that the, the government is really, need, you know, the police have said that they are going to clear the areas now. So um, they, they, they're just trying to avoid any more violence um, and maybe with a view to regrouping and to thinking about um, how to take the movement forward now. Did they ever have any uh, chance of success? If you go back to the substantive issue under discussion about whether it was going to be possible to change the government's mind about limiting the number of candidates or the candidates that would be available for election in this election in a couple of years' time, yeah, I mean, I think when we've discussed this before, you know, we've, we've said this, that, you know, while um, the, the demonstrations themselves were, were impressive insofar, you know, in the way that they galvanized public opinion and so many people actually came out and they seemed to, to really, you know, have a, have a big effect on the fabric of the city. Um, there was always a question that um, the, the fact that Beijing was never going to do anything. Beijing is never going to respond to, to public protest. It, it, it doesn't. It, it, it didn't in 1989. Uh, when the student protesters and the democracy demonstrators in, in Tiananmen Square were there. Um, and, and there was no reason to believe that it would now. It's, it's allowed the Hong Kong government to basically defuse the situation and has essentially sat there impassive while, while the situation has ultimately kind of fizzled out. I mean, we still have another couple of issues. Um, Joshua Wong, who's one of the student leaders, um, he went on, on hunger strike today and 
he's urging protesters to regroup in the heart of the city and he wants the Hong Kong government to, to resume dialogue with the students. But, I mean, this is a, an 18-year-old um, student activist who, who's been the symbol of, of, of the demonstrations in so many ways and, and a very courageous young man and, um, and uh, you know, an example of, of, of civil disobedience in action. But at the same time, you can see how it's kind of, at this point, it's losing a lot of the, the impetus. It's losing a lot of the, the meaning or, or relevance that it has to, to what happens day to day in Hong Kong. So how is this likely to be resolved? Will the protesters, do you think, finally just be uh, either go home or be swept off the streets? Um, well, what we have, I mean, the, the students and the younger leaders are saying that they're not going to move, you know, and that they're saying that it's the older, um, the older um, student, uh, sorry, the older um, pro-democracy activists who are trying to get them to move now. Um, it just, um, the way it looks is that um, eventually the police will just clear the areas. Um, these are quite small areas at this stage now. It's not anything like it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, the police have acted with, with amazing restraint in the last while, but they have said um, that um, uh, Leung Chunying, the, the um, chief executive of the city, has said that they would take resolute action. Um, and um, I imagine that what will happen is, is that things will be cleared. Um, what you might see happen, though, is that um, that the movement will, will kind of ebb and flow a bit more, you know, that... that there will always be the threat that they can come out and they can occupy these areas of the city again at any point. So um, I don't, I don't think the the broader issues have in any way been resolved, and I don't think that um, Leung Chunying is out of the um, is out of the out of the woods yet. But um, I still think the, the the immediate demonstrations and and the occupations um, are are likely to to fizzle out in the next few days. Uh, finally, Clifford, what if anything is likely to be the legacy for Hong Kong of these protests? Well, I think it's been a reminder for the world that Hong Kong is very much its own its own uh, you know it, it it stands on its own. I mean, it is a special administration uh, administrative region of China. Um, it's it's run by Beijing and it's benefited from its close relations to Beijing in terms of trade and tourism and and uh, the various economic links between uh, you know Hong Kong being a gateway into China and all that. But it's also shown that um, that this is a very sophisticated bunch of people who don't feel that they need to you know they they don't feel that they shouldn't have a say in how they determine their future. So I think they've they've raised a debate that um, that probably won't go away. So I think. Um, the legacy will be that Hong Kong is not going to be, you know, it's going to leave a kind of a thorny legacy. It's, it means that Hong Kong won't be kind of railroaded into action. And I think that ultimately, even though Beijing won't won't compromise um, in in um, in public, I think we will see something possibly behind the scenes to make things um, to make things a little more representative. That people will have a bit more feel they might have a bit more of a voice in how and how things develop in Hong Kong and how, how Hong Kong is run and um, as a way of, of stopping these, these demonstrations happening again. Clifford Coonan, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. As the European Union enters its eighth successive year of low economic growth, with unemployment still at record levels in many member states, parties of the radical left, as well as those on the far right, have seen their support grow. In Greece, Syriza, a coalition of more than a dozen left-wing groups, is ahead in the polls, 
while in Spain, Podemos, which grew out of the popular Indignados protest movement, is threatening the big parties of the centre-right and centre-left. Many of the new left-wing groups in Europe owe as much to the social movements of Latin America as they do to the European socialist tradition. Meanwhile, in South America, Sunday's victory for the ruling broad front in Uruguay was the latest confirmation of the enduring appeal of the left, more than a decade after the so-called pink tide swept the continent. So what does today's left stand for? And how realistic are its ideas for dealing with the economic crisis? To discuss this, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, from Sao Paulo by our Latin American correspondent, Tom Hennigan, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith, and managing editor, Cliff Taylor. Suzanne Lynch, can I ask you just how real is the rise of the radical left in Europe? Well, when we speak about Europe um, and the European Union, we're talking about 28 very different countries. Um, But I think what we really saw six months ago in the European elections was a glimpse of how powerful these, I suppose, anti-establishment parties from both sides of the political divide are. And we saw very strong gains, um, particularly from left-wing, far-left parties in countries um, like Greece, in countries like Italy, um, in Spain. And then we also saw um, anti-establishment parties top the polls in countries like France and the UK. Now, I mean, a lot of people at the time made the point, look, still the mainstream parties um, are on the ascendant. They have got the, you know, the, the most votes. But, I mean, it still is significant that when you see countries like France um, countries like Britain, when parties like UKIP and the National Front top the poll, there is definitely something happening in terms of how people are thinking about politics and how they're using their vote. So the, uh, you're describing, in a way, uh, populism on both the left and the right. But if we just stick for a moment with the yeah. radical left parties, like, the, uh, for example, the parties that I mentioned, Podemos mm-hmm. in Spain and Syriza in Greece, what exactly are they proposing in terms of a response to the current economic situation in Europe? Yeah, well, I think which is which, what those two two parties are a good example. I mean, they're based on economics. It's very much a response to the economic crisis. Both Greece and Spain, for example, um, saw you know the most of experienced you know the brunt of the economic crisis in a way. So this is the context in which these parties emerged. I mean, the big question is that a lot of them want to uh, look at debt restructuring. Um, we were familiar with this argument in Ireland about repaying bond holders, etc. So this is is quite a debate in the, both these countries. In Greece, which is about to exit its programme, there's still huge debate over the presence of the IMF, of the presence of the EU, um, and of the scale of austerity that's still being imposed in Greece. Don't forget, it's still in its programme. It still has to stick to certain um, targets by the Troika, or else it's not going to get its money from, from the lenders. So that debate is still very live in Greece. And unlike in Ireland, for example, they, they haven't turned a corner yet economically. I mean, it's just, just to mention as well, I was in Greece myself six months ago, and um, I was outside the Parliament at one weekend where the Parliament, I think, were pushing through 300 different measures. There were protests outside. But, but the, the scale of austerity measures that, that have happened in Greece... I mean, our, in, in Ireland, it, it pales into insignificance, really. So you, you, you've got that kind of explosive political context in which these country, these parties um, have emerged. But I think the key point is none of these parties have yet been in power. So this, this is a conundrum. 
we will not know what their policies are going to be unless they get into power. And this is what a lot of the political establishment are hoping, that once these radical left parties get in power, that their economic policies will be exposed as, as fraudulent, I suppose, or unworkable. And in the case of Podemos in Spain, they're actually not advocating a withdrawal from the Eurozone, but they're advocating, as you say, debt restructuring. Yes, and, and actually, to be fair, superiors in, in Greece, what we have seen is a slight shift, not just in, uh, with this new Spanish party, but also the more established party in, in Greece, the left-wing party, that they've even softened their tone and are saying, well, we don't want to exit the Eurozone, we just want to get a better deal, we want to renegotiate. So you are seeing maybe a softening of language um, by these radical left parties that are maybe with an eye to elections and maybe are realising, right, we really do want to form government, we have to move a little bit more to the centre. Um, so maybe we are seeing this kind of move to the centre, particularly in Spain with this new party, and um, they're very articulate, and um, they're economic advisors, they're very well informed, and as you say, they, they are they are advocating remaining in the euro, but just they're saying that they, they just want better terms for their country, which, which a lot of people think is quite reasonable. Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo, Suzanne was mentioning that uh, the radical parties of the left in Europe haven't achieved power, at least yet. But in South America, you've had more than a decade of experience of this. Uh, what explains the adjure, enduring appeal of the left in South America? Well, I think one reason is that they uh, came out of a situation that was quite similar to the one that Europe is in now. So Latin America in the 70s ran up huge debts, uh, went broke in the 80s, fell into a two-decade-long slump and had punishing austerity imposed on us by the IMF. And these parties, um, who had never achieved power before, most of them uh, were the leading campaigners against austerity as imposed by the IMF and for a, a new direction in the country, more social policy, more um, efforts to combat poverty. And they have, in many ways, achieved uh, huge success in the decade or so since most of them have um, taken power, particularly in, one, growing these economies strongly, but doing so in a way that directed many of the gains towards um, the poorer people in the region, which is something that uh, South America has often had huge moments of great growth, but the gains of that growth remained in the hands of the well-off and, uh, as opposed to the poor. In the last decade, we've seen the poor South Americans do better. But there is one important um, difference to, to make with Europe. When the left uh, came to power in South America, many for the first time shortly after the millennium, their arrival in presidential palaces coincided with a sudden explosion in Chinese demand for what the continent has most of, and that is mineral and agricultural commodities. So they had money to work with um, when, when they got into power. Obviously, there were a lot of difficult adjustments to be made. Many of them made mistakes, but they did have cash coming in, which is not something that some of these European countries have at the moment. Is that changing now? And are, are we likely to see uh, these left-wing governments in uh, South America suffer as a result of a decline in demand in China? They already are. Uh, we've seen slowdowns um, across the continent. It's going to post its uh, second lowest uh, GDP growth this year. In, in the last 12 years, um, Brazil has just stumbled out of a recession, though the uh, predictions are that it will barely grow next year. Uh, and then major commodity exporters that have ridden the boom here, um, Chile being one, uh, Argentina, Peru, Colombia, we've seen 
um, investments in mining and energy projects, much of it um, geared towards supply and Asian demand, that that has slowed down. And so those governments are beginning to have to cut back in certain areas. They're having to um, pay more attention uh, to government fiscal accounts. And that is going to basically impose choices that many of them haven't had to make up until now, and that is, uh, do you create leaner economies, um, um, and how do you do that? Do you do that by cutting back some of the social programs? So far, most of them are saying, no, we'll make adjustments elsewhere, but we're not going to um, touch the social programs that have been so um, important in reducing poverty and inequality. But it is... Uh, recognize that there are going to be tougher decisions for these governments to be made in the coming years than they have over the last decade. Cliff Taylor, these proposals of the radical left in Europe, they're very appealing to people who are sick of austerity. But how realistic are they just from a purely economic point of view? Well, I suppose the the problem for the traditional parties is all the focus over the last uh, four or five years has been just getting through the crisis and nobody's given a lot of thought to actually what's going to happen next. And I suppose perhaps to their surprise, having maybe combated the worst of the threat to the euro, uh, the governments across Europe are, are, are now in the conundrum that growth is, is refusing to appear in most economies. And, and in fact, there's a, threat, a real threat of deflation, which you know is, is a very dangerous economic situation to get into. So that's, I suppose, explains the attraction of, 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 the, of the left-wing parties uh, to, to many voters. And also the the seeming inability of of the centre parties to actually get to grips with this, to actually come up with a plan for fiscal expansion uh, or or even monetary expansion, because even what the central bank has done has been pretty restrained by German objections to to going further down the kind of route that the uh, Bank of England or the the US Fed might have taken. Um, I, I think the... There is certainly a case for more public investment in, in Europe. Uh, I think the Juncker plan we saw announced last week is only a small step in, in that road. It really has to be the member states, the ones that have money that have to get on board. And I suppose the problem Europe has faced is that the, the big players, and particularly Germany, have been, have been loath to do that. The whole issue of debt restructuring is, is, even, more, uh, is, is even more thorny, I suppose. Can we explain just exactly what debt restructuring is? When people talk about debt restructuring, sure. what debt are they talking about? How do they restructure it? How would it work? Sure. I suppose there's two two types of debt that, that are generally covered when people talk about restructuring. There's the debt in households and there's the debt in national governments. Uh, debt in households, a lot of debt was built up in countries like Ireland uh, and Spain during during the uh, during the economic boom in, in mortgages that are that are now not payable. And generally the approach that lenders have taken is that some of that is written off, but it's done very slowly. Um, and, and it's done in a way that I suppose protects the bank loan books from taking huge losses and, and that hasn't proved enough to get cons- consumer spending going. It's left a lot of people on the margins in very high, you know, under very high debts and not really able to participate fully in the economic life of the country and, and you know that is a big attraction for the far left parties. The other, uh, of course the other big issue is, is national debts. Uh, we saw restructuring in in Greece uh, and also in Cyprus, but apart from that, Europe has, has, I suppose, has decided not to go down that route. What that really means is that some of the people who have lent money to these countries um, agree, uh, or, or, or it's imposed on them that they, they don't get all their money back. 
uh, and they get it back over a longer time period. And the concept is that that gives the countries involved room to breathe, gives them more more money to spend on public uh, public expenditure, less need to tax, and it helps get the whole economic cycle going again. So would that actually uh, work just purely on a, a on a macroeconomic level? If you were to uh, to say ease the debt burden, spread it out over a longer period, sure. would that actually help to promote growth in Europe? Of course it would on on that level, but but it but it raises the the immediate problem. You need the lenders to keep lending to you, uh, and, and the risk I suppose uh, that has stopped Europe from going down that road is the fear the, of causing a great upheaval in the markets, that people who have lent money to Ireland and 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 Spain and and, and Italy and all the other uh, all the other countries uh, seeing that they're not going to get their money back uh, and believing that this is happening in a situation which you know wasn't an extremist. Greece happened in extremist, and so did Cyprus, but. You know, the rest of Europe is, is roughly paying its way at the moment. It, you know, it, imposing those kind of uh, losses on people would be very difficult and potentially very cause very serious upheavals in the market and perhaps reignite the whole euro crisis again. So, so, so it's not you know it's not an easy road to go down at all. But isn't there a curiosity here that if you were to talk to policymakers and economists outside Europe, like say in the United States, most of those would actually find themselves closer to these expansionist policies. Yeah. of the far left than they do of uh, to the, the orthodox uh, mainstream parties in Europe. Sure, I, th- I think in the period after the crisis, Europe has, has failed on pretty much every count. So it hasn't expanded fiscal policy, it hasn't expanded budget spending where, where it has been able to uh, do so, for example, in, in the richer countries. Uh, monetary policy, uh, the ECB hasn't been active enough in, in the way that uh, the Fed and uh, the Bank of England have been, and we haven't seen even even at a household level, even if you set the uh, even if you set the national debt question to one side and and, and all the questions about bank bondholders uh, and, and the problems that sort of that has caused for countries like Ireland, even at household levels, the moves haven't just been quick enough to deal with those problems, and it's left Europe stuck in stuck in a, stuck in a rut now. Paddy Smith, uh, are we watching, when we look at the rise of the radical left parties, is this actually the precisely the same phenomenon that we're seeing on the right that uh, Suzanne was mentioning, UKIP, the National Front in France? Or is it the same thing we're talking about? I think there's a lot of very interesting academic work to be done studying the social base of, the, of these movements. And I think there's an overlap in terms of where they're drawing their support. I would say, for example, that UKIP in... In, in Britain is is more leaning on, on, a, on a sort of lower middle class uh, base, what the Marxists would call the petty bourgeois, than on, on, on the traditional working class, although it has a strong working class base. Whereas in, in Syriza and, and Podemos, you're seeing the, the rise of uh, large numbers, for example, of young people who might not be participating in the system who are economically inactive uh, you're seeing uh, support among among the working class traditional supporters of of the left parties so it's arising out of the same phenomenon which is the disillusionment of ordinary people with with politics but it's it's arising in a different uh, a different form and and when I mentioned earlier on that the that many of these uh, new parties or new groups in Europe that they owe as much to uh, the Latin American social movements as they do to the traditional socialist uh, uh, history in Europe, do you share that view or do you not, think it's not really? I think I think that that one of the interesting things. Uh, about the emergence again of Podemos and, and and Syriza, who are really trailblazers in this in this regard in Europe, is is that they share a lot of similarities with the Workers' Party in Brazil, as it was 
16 years ago before Lula got into power, when in fact he adopted a policy rather like his his predecessor, market-based, supporting free trade, and the Socialist, uh, the Workers' Party, uh, and indeed most of the Latin American left moved towards social democratic Keynesian politics. Uh, there, there's a big split in the South, the South American left between more sort of nationalist, protectionist uh, policies you saw in places like Venezuela and under Chavez, and in places like Brazil or Chile where they've supported market reforms. So. They, the the parties there are really quite different from what we've seen in in uh, Europe emerging, which are somewhat sui generis. They came out of the Occupy movement. They came out of, of, of mass uh, struggle. Uh, their their forms of organisation. Uh, Podemos very interesting. It's it has local assemblies, which anybody who wants to get involved in can join in and, and direct policy. Um, it's it's very unlike any of the traditional. Uh, left parties. And of course, the question then arises is as soon as these parties actually get some form of power, uh, Podemos, Syriza, and the Slovenian left are all quite capable in, in elections of taking, of, of winning majorities or winning majorities with uh, similarly thinking uh, parties. Uh, what happens to them and, and how they evolve in, in that sort of situation? Because it's not at all clear that they would be able to continue functioning in the same basis. Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo, how are these European movements perceived in Latin America? Are they seen as being sister movements or of being something quite different? Um, for many left-wing activists, they are seen as sister movements, particularly Podemos, uh, several of whose leaders uh, have spent time in, in South America with left-wing uh, governments looking at what they've done, advising them in some cases. Um, so there definitely is a sense of solidarity. But I think um, Paddy's point is highly relevant. The left in pretty much every country, uh, when it was on the verge of taking power, there were um, many people afraid in those countries that we were going to see very radical regimes. Uh, international markets were terrified, um, you know, money stampeding for the exits. But in most of the cases, when these parties have uh, taken power in South America, they have been quite cautious, uh, one could almost say conservative, in how they have governed and how they have managed the accounts. And the ones that have been uh, more cautious have been the more successful ones. Um, and I would say Uruguay, uh, where we saw Tabari Vesquez win a third uh, term for the left on Sunday, Brazil, which is now going to have its fourth term, um, Chile as well. These countries um, have, you know, been what I would call, um, you know, centre-left rather than um, hard-left. And even countries and um, governments that have a reputation for being more radical, like um, Bolivia, Ecuador, um, in fact, when you look beyond the rhetoric, they have been quite conservative in many of their um, decisions in power. And the countries that have been the most radical are the ones that have the most economic problems, Venezuela and Argentina, where we have um, dollar shortages and worries about paying for their imports, rampant inflation. So uh, there might be within these movements in South America a lot of sympathy for groups like Podemos, but uh, when they actually come to governing themselves, they tend to be um, quite centrist. 
Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, can I come back to you? Is there any sign at all of uh, any shift in European economic policy in response both to the uh, economic conditions that Cliff was describing and to these political changes that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, there is a sense of change at the moment. The new European Commission um, has taken office and the new president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, former Polish prime minister, um, took took office this week also. So th- there is a sense that, that things, you know, that there's an opportunity, a window here for, for a new approach to economic policy. Last week we saw the Juncker Commission um, announce its, its investment plan for Europe. I mean, a lot of people criticised it because it made, they made the point that actually it was supposed to be 315 billion, whereas in fact it's only 21 billion, which would be then be leveraged, and in fact no new money is involved. But but there's another way of looking at this that it's about the European Union actually trying to do more with the money it already has, moving away from just giving kind of grants and subsidies and and putting money into plug, plugging holes, but actually using money and trying to engage with the investment community. Now, if this was to work, it, it sounds pretty radical. The new One of the new vice commissioners, Jörg Katainen, has talked about going on investor-type roadshows across Europe, trying to get investors to buy into public investment projects. So, so that could, I mean, that, that is something quite new. Um, but Jean-Claude Juncker said last week that that's only one strand. He called it the third lung, investment is the third strand or third pillar of, of the EU's uh, policy response. And the other one would be structural reforms and um, budgetary consolidation. And then the other issue is the ECB. And as Cliff said there, I mean, the ECB has been criticised for being too conservative, for focusing too much on um, the interest rate side of things. Um, now, we had seen indications from Mario Draghi um, that a full-scale quantitative easing programme could be embraced by the bank. But even this week, we're seeing that, again, there's divisions within the ECB governing council about this, particularly from Germany. They're wary about doing this. So anyone looking for a new change in policy from the ECB may be quite disappointed in the next few months. Cliff Taylor, uh, all of these things that uh, Suzanne has been describing, are they going to be enough to uh, to do what it takes to get uh, the European economy growing again? It's very doubtful uh, at the moment. Uh, the growth, low growth, and low inflation seem to be so ingrained in the in the big economies at the moment that it is going to take. Uh, quite a shift to get them going again. Uh, as Suzanne said, the Juncker plan uh, could have an impact in terms of boosting public investment, but really we need something much more widespread than that. And one of the issues, I suppose, is that in, in terms of budgets, again, as Suzanne said there, the focus of the Commission has been on budgetary consolidation. It's been on cutbacks. Uh, and there hasn't been a, a a matching increase in spending from countries that do have uh, additional funds. And really, that's the only way that it could work without without pushing Europe further further down the route of of deflation and low growth. Uh, so, so you know there, there is a serious threat, and I think that's why Mario Draghi has been trying to move the ECB's position again. Uh, really, what what he's done so far, he's promised to to print money, he's promised to pump money into the European economy, but he hasn't really done it yet. Uh, and it it looks like f- he would like to move early next year to actually turn those words into action. But as Suzanne said, there's still significant German opposition to that. And finally, Paddy Smith, we've been talking about the left in uh, elsewhere in Europe and in Latin America. What about the left in Ireland? Are we seeing a similar uh, resurgence as we're seeing elsewhere? I think we are. I think I think what's very interesting, if you look at the poll, polling figures in Ireland, uh, both uh, nationally and in, in the capital, you see in, in nationally 
some 40% plus of voters uh, willing to support what might be termed anti-establishment candidates, whether they're Sinn Féin uh, or, or independents. Uh, and in the capital, over 50%, that's more than one in two voters would support candidates uh, openly critical of the austerity program, campaigned in many cases against uh, the water rates or, or whatever. And, and there, are, there are very close analogies, it seems to me, with what's happened. Somebody said today in the paper, uh, we've come late to the party, but boy, are we there. Patrick Smith, Cliff Taylor, Suzanne Lynch and Tom Hennigan, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Declan Conlon, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.